snacks, uh, food, cut, nourish. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from the law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me, grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decree, decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, I remember your name, O Lord. I will keep law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Good deal. Are you gonna? You're leaving now. Or are you gonna be? I'm gonna. I'm gonna stay here. No, I, Jess, you're yes, leaving now. No, we didn't want. Well, no, come on up here with the kids before you go. Oh, okay. Come on up, cause we got we got people online right now that are watching. Might as well introduce you. I know they've met you before, some of them, but some of them, you know, this is Bible but class, so it's different than the church. And uh, so yeah. come on over here and kind of just get down with me because I don't know how big the uh, the screen is over there. But uh, come here. Come here. I just really quickly, oh, before we pray, I want to introduce some oh, people that are visiting right. us right now. This is Ray and Jess Willett, and they're three children. And uh, these two folks them. here are, yeah, two of them are here. Uh, these folks are currently um, in school to... Uh, uh, become missionaries and uh, they got their assignment and just today I got the email as they are notified that they're going to be going to Papua New Guinea wow. and so uh, this is this is where they're heading out to that'll be next year and I just wanted to let you know if you're on the Bible study and uh, you have a desire to support missionaries uh, they are going to be uh, at this time already they're in school and they're they're uh, in need of funds but at some point they're going to be deputizing where they need to actually raise a monthly amount that comes in and when they meet that amount then they can actually go out into the field and that starts now but i just wanted to let you know this we have a, a couple of people that i've known for years since they were not married and they were very young and this has been their desire and their goal all along uh they've got married they've had three children and they are still uh set on doing this he's in linguistic school right now they're getting ready to uh, actually finish that up then they're going to go from missouri to oklahoma and after oklahoma then they're going to come back here to finish their money raising and uh, head overseas to papua new guinea so uh please consider that that if it's something that's on your heart to help a missionary the uh, group of missionaries that have dedicated their lives to getting the gospel out to literally unreached people this is where you can go to help them. So uh, there you go. Right. And uh, thanks, Charlie. All right, not at all. Not at all. What? I said Ray and Jess Willett. I did. Yep, yep, yep. And they can contact me, no problem. And then uh, uh, Jess is gonna have the kids go because they don't want to attend Bible study. Today. <laughs> a little bit more fun with Grandma. Absolutely. And so, uh, but Ray will be here with us during the class, and I just wanted you all to meet them. Thank you. And nope, not at all. You guys have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you later. And um, let's see here. So we'll go ahead and go to prayer uh, before we get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the chance to come together again. Thank you for the past week. Uh, you've uh, restored me to health, which I appreciate. And uh, uh, we certainly continue to pray for Paul, who is unable to attend. And he probably won't be here on Sunday again as well. And uh, so we would pray that you would give him strength in his, uh, his physical body and uh, uh, keep his spirit uh, encouraged during this time of his healing as well. And uh, you know all the other people that are out there, Lord, that have needs. And some of them I've, uh, I've uh, got for Sunday to, to mention, but you know them now. And we thank you for the chance to bring them up to you. 
We ask that you would be with us during this Bible study. Help us to uh, handle your word properly and to just glorify you through this. And Lord, we love you and we praise you and we exalt you and we do it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Um, and before we get started, I'm not going to give the name because I, I just uh, don't have permission to do that, but I want to read you something, uh, that, a letter that came in today. And it's one of those things that um, I know I put it here somewhere. Give me one second. And there it is right there. Um, you know, sometimes when you are in a church, you get you get all kinds of stuff either by email or by letter that uh, uh, can just be. Anyway, there's there's a really wonderful side to having a church. And uh, today is one of them. And I, I so that so much want to read this to you so that you understand that there there are things out there that I just. Dear, uh, we'll just say Charlie, I say Pastor Garrett, but dear Charlie and the Superior Word Church family, my husband and I look forward to watching our favorite prophecy updates each week by uh, J.D. Farag, Amir Sarfati, and uh, Charlie Garrett. The last time we watched the Superior Word Prophecy Update, my husband said, I want to send them something. Within two weeks, he lost his six-year battle with cancer. God was so good, so very good. The last week of his life, my husband had uh, no pain. He died very peacefully with a little smile on his face. So in his memory and at his request, I send you this, and she sent us something. Your, uh, um, your, your physical church may be small, but your online church is large. I often share your website with family and friends. I tell them he may look like an old hippie, but he is sound in doctrine. Bible teaching and prophecy perspective, and he has a good, well, forget the accolades. Anyway, I'll go down. Uh, I, I pray that God will continue to bless your ministry, and then she gave her name. They're in Texas, and uh, she enclosed a copy of a poem that her husband wrote some years ago, and it's very short, so let me read that to you. It says, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, for taking my place on the cross where I should have been dead, and there for me your blood you did shed to cover all my sin and shame, and now I praise your holy name. Thank you, Lord, for patience and love. Thank you for reaching down from above to lift me out of the hell I was in for washing away my sorrow and sin, for making me as white as snow, and praise I praise you now wherever I go. So that makes all of the difficult times of being in a church worthwhile when you get something like that, to know uh, that uh, she... She has good memories of her husband, and she was willing to send something on because it meant something to him. And so I just, I don't know if they watch the Bible studies or not, but I, I wanted to let them know You're if she does. accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. Um, okay, we're in uh, the book of Romans now, and uh, we're in verse 520. I'm sorry, my voice is still not back from last weekend. I probably should not have preached because I couldn't speak at all on Monday and Tuesday, but I'm sure that made Hedico elated. So um, anyway, um, I'm feeling 90% better until today, and now I'm back down to about 70. But anyway, um, we'll make it through the class. I know we will. So, so 20 is the beginning of a uh, paragraph. Yes, 520. Is that correct? Yes, um, yeah, well, I tell you what, just because it's a moreover, why don't you go back to 17 and just read? 17, okay, four. If by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace 
and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so all the result of one act of righteousness was justification, was life for all men. But just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made high, made righteous. Okay, and that's that's very close to the new king. So I'll, uh, as far as verse, oh, verse 20, go ahead. Here we go. Uh, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but there were, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Okay, it almost sounds, well, we'll get to it. Uh, let me read this one, it is a little different. More over the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that's going to lead to some obvious questions of Paul later, but we'll deal with that when we get to him. So 520, these are my comments on it. Oh, before I go on, I, I last week said that there was a guy talking about missionaries going overseas, and um, I said uh, Hiram Judson, I think. And that, uh, that was not the person I was thinking of, and I want to let you know, this is a guy that went to was in England, and he eventually went down to Burma and some other places. It was Adoniram Judson was his He's name. He's the fellow who was hugging the globe. Yes, hugging the globe. Instead of and, uh, Hudson Taylor, yes, Adoniram uh, Judson. That's right. Instead of Hudson Taylor is who I said. That's right. It's Adoniram Judson. That's who it was. And I knew there was an Hudson in there somewhere. But um, anyway, he was a missionary to Burma. Read up on him. You can go to Wikipedia or you can go to plenty of uh, uh, Christian sites and read up on him. But I just I wanted to let you know that. Okay, so verse 520. <laughs> the previous verses concerned Adam's trespass in contrast to Christ's obedience. Paul demonstrated the superiority of Christ's work in all ways concerning the two and the glory of what he accomplished. Now, Paul turns to the thought in verse 513. He says, For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay? Sin was in the world, and death reigned even through the law, uh, though the law had not yet been introduced. <laughs> Excuse me. Ah, wow. However, or as Paul might say, moreover, the moreover is intended to highlight the incomparable nature of God's grace. The contrast between Adam and Christ is striking. All hail the work of Christ, and yet there is more. Moreover, he says, the law entered that the offense might abound. One sin committed by Adam in ignorance, meaning prior to the knowledge of good and evil, brought about death to all people. How much more will a body of law comprised of 10 commandments and 613 total commandments bring in offense? Okay, you have to ask, why would God do this? You've got sin obviously is in the world because of one offense, and then of course we have the law of conscience, but then God decides I am going to initiate something completely new into the stream of humanity. It's what we call the law of Moses. It's the dispensation of the law, only applicable to the people of Israel. The rest of the world was still out there under government. And he says, I'm going to give you my laws and my statutes. And he even says in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, I think it's verse 5, the man who does these things shall live by them. That's right. The man who does these things shall live by them. So there's a possibility within the law that if you can meet the demands of the law, you will live. The implication is that you won't die, okay? But 
if one man without the knowledge of sin committed sin and without the knowledge of good and evil, he was told what not to do, but he had no knowledge of good and evil. If he committed one sin and it caused the whole world to fall into sin, why would God give this burdensome yoke upon the people of Israel? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. The law was introduced as a tool to show us that sin, as Paul says, through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That's Romans 7, verse 13. Let me read that again. That sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. It's to show us how utterly depraved we are and the exceedingly sinful of nature of the exceedingly sinful nature of sin to God. Okay, we can <coughs> excuse me. We can look at our at death in the world, and we can rely on our conscience, even apart from the law, to know our fallen state. How much more do we see it when our actions are compared to God's standard? as outlined in the law of Moses. In other words, this is the standard that he is given. He is saying, this is my standard. If you can meet these things, then life will come through them, knowing that nobody could meet those standards. And we're seeing that as we're going through the book of Leviticus, we're seeing each time the fallible nature of the law because it's initiated by fallible men. We're gonna see that again this week. Moses is a fallible man. He's the one that does the priestly duties in order to install um, Aaron. Well, how can an imperfection come from somebody that's imperfect installing another imperfect person? It can't happen. The law of the Mo law of Moses never could save anybody. It could never bring righteousness about in fallen man. Couldn't do it. So one of the reasons why God gave it was that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. How much more do we see it when our actions are compared to this standard as outlined in the law of Moses? And the law didn't come without a warning, did it? There are promised blessings for obedience, obedience and promised curses for disobedience. When Israel failed to be obedient, they could only expect punishment and exile. The law was such an immense demonstration of our inability to meet its standards that the people in Jeremiah's time cried out these words, Jeremiah 18, 12. Let me read them to you right from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah... <clears throat> This is, this is the, what, how dire being under the law was to the people. I'm going the wrong direction anyway. Jeremiah 18, verse 12. <sighs> wow. I hope I get over this. Uh, if you're there, yeah, go ahead. God's warning rejected. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to your own plans, and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Absolutely. That is hopeless. We're going to walk in according to our own plans and according to the dictates of our own heart. And the reason why is because how can we meet this law? It's completely hopeless. It's been shown time and time again. But God promised them and they agreed to it. The, the thing we need to remember is regardless of what the people of Jeremiah's time think and regardless of what happened before the exile or after the next, next exile or even at this point in human history, Israel agreed to the law. They agreed to it in the book of Exodus. They said, as a people, we agree to the terms of this, and they set that as a binding condition over them. It does not matter if the next generation agreed to it or not. They had agreed in the presence of the Lord. The people are in their fathers. We've talked about that, how a person is in their parent, potentially, and then if they're born, they were actually in their parent. So the, the parent's guilt in that sense is transferred to the child because the parents made the 
covenant or agreed to the covenant with God. So it doesn't matter if they say it's hopeless, we're going to walk according to the dictates of our own heart. Their parents had already sealed their fate. And as I said, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I said there are a promise uh, curses and blessings. If you go to Leviticus chapter 16, no need to turn there. I'm just uh, turning there myself. But in Leviticus chapter 16, it gives the blessings and the curses. They are in the first person. I'm sorry, it's not 16, it's Leviticus 26. They're in the first person. He first goes through some commandments. You're not to do this, you're not to do this. And then he says, if you uh, do these things, I'm just going to read a couple of them. I'll give you peace in the land. You shall lie down. None of you will be afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through uh, your land. And we'll go down a few. Verse 9, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply you and come confirm my covenant with you. Go down a few more verses. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. So he's given them all these promises and all these wonderful things he's going to do for them if they obey. And then immediately goes into the curses. But verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments, blah, blah, blah. And he says all the bad things that are going to happen to him. Hello. And uh, he says, I'll set my face against you. Verse 18, uh, I will punish you seven times over. Uh, verse 20, um, uh, 19, I'll break the uh, pride of your power. I'll make the heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. We'll go down to uh, verse 24. And I'll walk contrary to you, and I'll punish you seven times for your sins. And I'll bring a sword against you that you uh, will execute the vengeance of the covenant. On and on, the curses come if they don't obey. Well, this is something they agreed to. Deuteronomy 28 repeats these, but it says them in the third person. Moses reminds the people. The Lord will do this. The Lord will do that. But in Leviticus 26, it's in the first person. I will do these things. It is the Lord who takes the action against them. Only Israel can take uh, and look at these words and say, we are to blame. Not anybody else. Now, it's true that when the nations got a hold of Israel, they took it farther than the Lord would have demanded. That said, for example, in the book of Isaiah. But the Lord is the one that said, if you don't obey these things, I will do these things to you. And if you go through Leviticus 26, and then you go through the book of Habakkuk, which is the destruction of, uh, of uh, the people and the terrible things that are happening. Guess what? They go in order almost. They just follow. This happened to this person. I'm going to do this. This happened. I'm going to do this. This happened. And it just follows along the line. They're just basically recounting what the Lord had said he would do. He did. All right. So this is the results of the law of Moses. This is what was promised because of disobedience, but there was a promise of blessing for obedience. No, it all falls into play. It doesn't matter what the people said. It is hopeless in Jeremiah. It doesn't matter. They had agreed to it. The parents did, and they are their parents. <clears throat> what they had failed to see is that the law was not an end of itself, but that it was a tool to get them ready to rely on God's grace and mercy. Even under the Old Covenant, this was shown to be true. But the people normally took one of two avenues. One, living out the law as a means to an end, which brought about feelings of self-righteousness and contempt for others and even God. Right? We see that all the way through the New Testament. And Jesus is rebuking the people. I'm better than this guy because I do this part of the law and this part of this, you know, and they're, they're high on themselves. And Jesus would show them, you know, you might be doing this part of the law, but you're certainly not fulfilling this part of the law. But that doesn't matter. I'm better than this person. And so there's this, this self-righteous attitude going on. Or secondly, they simply disregard the law because it could never be met anyway. Jeremiah 18, verse 12. It's hopeless. We're just going to do what we want to do. 
Either way, it, it does not solve the problem. They are under the law, they are obligated to the law, and they must meet the law or they will get the, uh, the promised curses. If they do meet it, they'll get the promised blessings. Now, that kind of brings us in real quickly to uh, Deuteronomy 9, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9, <clears throat> which says that God has given, and we saw that on the board a week or two ago, that there are seven more years for Israel to be under the law in order to bring in righteousness and to seal up the most holy and all that stuff that we talked about. Okay, those seven years are promised to Israel. And they are going to think, once again, that they're a means to an end. If we can just fulfill this law, then everything is going to be fine. And they're going to find out that that is not the case. You know, at the halfway point of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to come into the temple of God, and he's going to proclaim that he is God, right? He's going to defile the temple, and the people are going to see it's happening all over again. Nothing is working out under this law, and eventually they are going to come to the understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law for everyone who believes. And they are going to call on him and he's going to return to them. Seven more years of this, but it is going to have the same effect as it has all along. One of those two avenues. They're either going to say, well, look at how good we are, more righteous than everybody else, or they're going to say it's hopeless. And you can see that even today in Israel. That What was it on the Prophecy Update on Sunday? I think it was 70% of the people over there, 76% believe that gay marriage is okay. They've already rejected the law. They, they want nothing to do with it. It's hopeless, so why even bother? We're just going to live according to the dictates of our own heart. This is the, the, the problem with being in the people of Israel and not knowing who their Messiah is, is they've, they've got to endure what's coming, it's, and it is coming, and it's probably coming soon. Anyway, they failed to see that even under the law, God's grace, oh, I said that was available in evidence, such as in the Day of Atonement feast, okay? If there's a Day of Atonement, it implies that they need atonement. They need a covering. Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur simply means the Day of Covering, okay? It's to atone for their sins. If they need a Day of Atonement under the law, then they obviously did not meet the, the demands of the law. The man who does these things will live by them, they're not going to be able to live by them, but at least the Lord will cover or atone their sins for another year. What what does that imply, Day of Atonement? You can't sin. It implies you sin, but it also implies that you're not saved by the law, but you're saved by grace. That's right. The Day of Atonement is a day of grace. Even under the law, it was never of works. People will say, well, the law was works plus grace. I've heard that five million times in my life. The law is never works plus grace. Nobody could meet the demands of the law. They already had sin in them. They were already condemned, John 3, 18. Okay, the law was never works plus, plus grace. It is always, as we saw, it was uh, Romans chapter 3, David citing the, writing in the Psalms and Paul citing him, that it was always, always grace. Blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed to him. That can't happen under the law. It comes by grace, okay? It comes by a provision under the law, which is apart from the mandates of the law, the Day of Atonement, okay? Before I uh, go on, uh, Nicole probably saw him, but maybe some of you walked in and weren't paying attention. Mangoes back there, please take them. And uh, whatever you don't take, I got to carry home, so please take all you want in their bags. So anyway, um, let's see here. Um, where was it? Day of Atonement, okay? Oh, yeah, if they could, I'm talking about David, and David said this, like David understood this precept, then they would have seen that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's what Paul is saying in this verse. This is what he's saying. The immensity of the guilt 
because of the introduction of the law allowed an even greater demonstration of God's grace. This could not have been evident without the law. It was impossible. If you don't have the law, then you can't get the superabounding of grace. And that's what the Day of Atonement is. It's, it's this immense amount of grace that's poured out on the people because they've sinned all year long in thought, in word, in deed, and in deeds of omission and commission. It's just heaped upon them. And how much greater is the grace that they receive on the Day of Atonement? And uh, they were required to participate in the Day of Atonement. It says they, you had to uh, not eat that day. You had to abase yourselves. And there were certain things that they were required to do. And if they didn't, then they weren't atoned for, which implies, once again, faith. Because they could just be in the fields and say, well, I don't really have to do that. And nobody's going to know because I'm up at my hometown and uh, nobody's going to know that I'm not doing that. It all came down to faith, even under the law. Their forgiveness was by grace and through faith completely. Okay. Um, so much for reintroducing the law. I, once again, I had some people email me today that emailed me. I brought them up a week or so ago. They have friends that are stuck in this Hebrew roots movement that their whole life they've been in a Christian church, and all of a sudden they're, they're using the word Torah like it's almost like a, a talisman, like Torah. We observe the Torah. And all, all the word Torah means is instruction. We, use, we call the first five books of the law the Torah or the instruction. But the word is used all through the Old Testament, even in like the 119th Psalm. Your law, O Lord, your instructions are good. It's just a word. That's all it is. It's just a word which means to be instructed or instruction. But people take these single words in Hebrew and they, they, they like elevate them. I, I know something that the people in other churches don't know. And get away from the law. Get away from the law. Christ fulfilled it. It is done. Christ is the beginning of the law for everyone who believes, right? He's the end of the law for all who believe. The end. It is done. He filled it, fulfilled it. So please, if you know somebody that's in this stuff, I don't know if you can help them or not, because once you get something into your head, it's kind of stuck there. But this is what Paul is trying to show us right here, is the purpose of the law and why the law couldn't save. Anyway, um, let's see here. David understood this. Paul is saying that uh, uh, it's a great demonstration of God's grace, and this could not have been evident without the law. Unfortunately, too few realized the scope of God's grace until the introduction of the ultimate example of it, Jesus, okay? And remember now, he initiated the new covenant in his blood, but he died in fulfillment of the old covenant, all right? The old is done in him, and that had to happen before he could introduce a new covenant. So we want to make sure that we don't say, well, Jesus is just New Testament. Jesus is not just New Testament. Everything he said to Israel was under the Old Testament. Every single word of the three synoptic gospels is to be taken from that dispensational view, that it was Old Testament speaking to them under the law in anticipation of what? The king, no, the kingdom age, the kingdom age. Christ will rule on the the throne from Israel. There will be the messianic era where Jerusalem will be the head of the nations. Nothing about the church age was in his words of uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke in any of those three until after the crucifixion. They were not expecting him to be crucified. They didn't know that he was the end of the law for everyone who believes. And every word that he was saying about this marvelous time on earth, once again, where is that testified to? Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Let me read it to you really quickly. Um, somebody sent me a link here while I'm uh, going to uh, read through these uh, verses. 
and it's kind of a nice read. I didn't have time to look at the site, but um, I'll Acts, what? Um, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, um, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's raised, he's been crucified, he's been resurrected, and they're asking him, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time to Israel? That ought to be the biggest clue in the world to the people of Israel that everything that he had said to them was speaking of the kingdom age. Everything. He wasn't speaking about the church. How people can take Matthew 24, where he's speaking about all of these things, the end times, and you know, the, and they say, well, that's speaking about the rapture. They had no idea what he was talking about. None. They thought everything was, was kingdom age, all of it. And that is what they were thinking. That's what he was saying to him. He wasn't speaking about uh, uh, church matters at all, not at all. So the uh, website that this lady sent me a link to, and like I said, I haven't read it, and I'm not going to give the name of it because I want to give something that turns out to be Fruit Loop. But their their idea was exactly. It took us three years to get through the Book of Acts, and it, it at least what they said at the title of a couple of their their pages was spot on that Acts is the central point, and Acts is divided from 1 through 12, and then 13 through 28. And you've got this division, where the first 12 chapters are all Peter, all Peter, and the second half of Acts is all Paul. It's showing the transition from Jerusalem to Rome. It's showing you the transition from the Jewish-led economy of people still thinking kingdom age to the Gentile led economy where people are thinking, let's go out and tell the world about Jesus. There's 15 billion groups of people on this planet. We know that there's Greeks and there's people up in England. And we know there's people over there with uh, uh, slanted eyes and we need to talk to them. They knew all of this. And they said, let's go tell these people. And we're still doing that 2000 years later with people like Ray, who's going over to Papua New Guinea with people that have never seen anything outside of a mountain ridge because there's no way in or out of that mountain ridge except to fly in by a helicopter. This is what the Gentile-led church age has been doing because they understand Jesus Christ. But the Jews had no idea, no idea at all. And so Acts is the great shift from the old to the new and what God is going to do for 2,000 years while this group of people that we're talking about right now are under the punishment that he promised in Leviticus 26 because they did not receive their Messiah. The kingdom was not issued in. They were thinking it's coming in. It wasn't 2,000 years later. It still isn't because they need to go through those final years of Daniel's timeline. And after that happens, the kingdom age will come in. Everything that Jesus was saying was either kingdom age or tribulation period leading up to kingdom age. Nothing, nothing to do with the church. And yet, I, I won't even say it. I will just leave that one alone. Please understand that not a word that Jesus said out of his mouth from Matthew, Mark, or Luke before the crucifixion had anything to do with the church. Nothing. Okay? John is completely different. I've showed you that before. We will go through it again eventually just to, to remind you. But John is a melding of the, the uh, Jews and the Gentiles in a unique way, just as the books of 1, 2, and 3 John are. They're in the Bible in a specific place for a specific reason, and it is, it's God showing there's going to be a transition. And right after John, what does he do? He gives us the transition. He gives us the book of Acts, and he shows us what's going to happen. The Bible itself, the way that it's laid out in its 66 books, shows redemptive history, how the ages are going to be broken down. So enough of that for now, but it all bears on what Paul is saying right here. So... Um, 
<laughs> oh boy. Uh, let's see here. Um, with the coming of Christ, Jesus, he came, he was the one who could fulfill the law, and he did. Okay, there's the law, nobody can fulfill it. Why? Because they already have a sin nature. Impossible to fulfill this law. We saw it in Moses, who still alive today. No, Moses died. He was buried at 120 years old, I think on Mount Nebo, or maybe that was Aaron, I'm not remembering right now. But anyway, uh, he was buried at 120 years of age. Okay, Aaron, the administrator of the law, he's the high priest and the mediator for the people of Israel, is still alive today, right? No, he died, okay? And then his son died, and his son died, and his son died, and his son died. And guess what? The person that came to fulfill the law wasn't of the tribe of Levi at all. Once again, why go back into the Hebrew roots movement? Why go back under the law when the law ended in Aaron? It had nothing to do with Christ at all. Christ came from which tribe? Judah. Judah. That's right. He came from a different tribe, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Everything about the law is done. Why would you want to go back under something that has nothing to do with Christ? Because he fulfilled it. We don't have anything to do with that anymore in him. We have something to do in him apart from the law, completely apart from the law. All right. So he gave his life. He fulfilled it. After accomplishing this glorious deed, he gave his life as a substitute for those who could never meet it. All of the people in Israel, he died for them. He died that they could be reconciled to God the Father in fulfillment of the types which are given in the Old Testament, right? They are looking forward to the Messiah. They're looking forward to the day when he would come and be the seed of the woman who would redeem the sons of Adam, okay? We know that, but every year they're going down and they're sacrificing for their sins. And somebody asked me a great question today. Let me see if I can remember. It was um, from Matthew chapter 9 and... Um, yeah, here we go. He, uh, uh, the person came to Jesus and he said, your sins are forgiven, right? And then they says, who can forgive sins but God alone? This guy blasphemies, right? And he says, well, if Christ had to die in order to forgive sins, then how could he have forgiven that person's sins, right? It's a great question, isn't it, right? I told him it's the exact same thing as the Old Testament sacrifices. God says, I will forgive your sins if you come down and you confess your sins and you do your sin offering, I'll forgive the sin, right? Did he forgive their sins through that ram or lamb or goat or whatever the sin offering was? Did he forgive them? Sure. He did in anticipation of Christ, not actually. Their sins were forgiven, but it says in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, right? So yes, he forgave them, but only in anticipation of the final fulfillment of those types and pictures, which we see every single Sunday in the book of Leviticus. Types and pictures looking forward to Christ. So the answer to the question, and I went back to him and I said, it was a very good question. He says your sins are forgiven, but until he dies, there can't be forgiveness for his sins. So when he said your sins are forgiven, it was based on faith in Christ, right? Christ died in fulfillment of what he said he would do, and so his sins are forgiven, right? In actual, there's potential forgiveness, there's actual forgiveness, just like everything that we talk about. So are you po saying that, that, that he was given that promise, and after Christ was crucified? After Christ was crucified, he, it actually came about. Okay. That's right. He forgave his sins. Just as God says, I will forgive your sins when you bring your sin offering, the, the person's the person who offers this, we've seen it in Leviticus at least 20 times in all of these different offerings. You bring your offering and the person's sins will be forgiven, right? 
But it says the blood, bull, blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So did he lie to them? No. It was only in anticipation of the final sacrifice okay, of Christ. So, Hang so on the, the Jews who were still sacrificing at that time right. were, were, were offering in faith right. that they would be forgiven. forgiven. But and they were. Potentially. That's right. right. Well, potentially in Christ. Correct. So, yes. okay, they live their life, they die. Right. Christ comes, he's crucified. Then their faith, from back then, is fully realized in his sacrifice. Okay. That is correct. Yes. Sacrifices is a covering. That's right. Well, it's a covering, but so is Christ. He is our atonement. Yes. He is our atonement. That, that's exactly right. We are forgiven our sins. If the forgiveness is complete, it is. It, what does it say in Isaiah? I will forgive your sins. I'll, they'll be removed as far as the east is from the west. So there's different types of, of things going on in Christ. You've got atonement. You've got propitiation. You've got expiation. Expiation is the carrying away of the sins, right? You've got all of these different things. Every one of them is fulfilled in Christ. They are all different types fulfilled in him. Everything. The altar is Christ. The lamb on the altar is Christ. The blood of the lamb pictures the shed blood of Christ. The garments of Aaron all picture his work. Every single detail, everything points to Christ. I said that at the beginning of the sermon. We'd only got through maybe two verses last week. And I said, if you see already, we've already got like eight pictures of Christ just in a couple verses. Every single detail of this book points to him and what he's going to do. But like I said, that was a very astute question for him to ask me because, you know, who would think that? But this is what he's thinking. How do I reconcile these two things? The answer is always Christ, and it is always by faith in Christ. Because if that person in the Old Testament, and even the Old Testament itself bears this out, if that person went down to Jerusalem with a goat, right, and he didn't believe that it was going to be satisfactory for his sins, and he was just doing it for show, he wasn't forgiven. Hey, what does the Lord say? I'm tired of your sacrifices and, you know, the endless stream of blood and it means nothing. And Malachi talks about bringing one that's defective. Well, guess what? That wasn't allowed under the law. But people said, well, it doesn't matter anyway. So they bring a defective animal. Sorry, not forgiven. You're not forgiven. It has to be in faith. And if it's in faith, then it'll be in accord with what the Lord expects. So everything, everything comes back to Jesus. Everything. And Go ahead. Thing I was going to say is interesting thinking about people in the time of Christ people who faithfully did bring their sacrifices and perhaps even as Christ revealed himself, they never knew about Christ. That's right. You know what I mean? That like for their whole life, they faithfully brought their sacrifice and they, and they entered, you know, the way, the way God asked them to. And because of that faith on the basis of the blood of Christ, that's right. They would be forgiven. Even, even if they, you know, didn't Christ know died who he was, and they didn't know who they he had was. no idea. But I will say this: after Acts chapter two, and that's a good point you brought up. Well, that's it's something that we that you wrestle with when you think about it. Because you what, bet. There's this transition. period. There is this transition period, and that's what God gave them. He gave them until A.D. seventy, which is the sign of Noah, by the way. It's the time frame, the forty years of a day for a year. The Noah said, "I'm sorry, Jonah said to Nineveh, it'll be." 40 days, and then if they will be destroyed. And Jesus said, the sign of Jonah is the only sign you're going to get a day for a year. 40 years later, they were destroyed. There's this interim period where Israel, as a collective whole, was given the chance to turn to Christ and be collectively saved by him. They rejected that. And thus, they were, once again, the second exile, 
which is in Leviticus 26 that I read you. If you don't listen the first time, I'll punish your sins seven times over. Guess what? That seven times over is, it brings them right up to May 5th, or I'm sorry, May 14th, 1948. If you do the calculation, exactly the day they were reestablished as a nation, it was fulfilled. And then 19 years later, because Jerusalem fell 19 years after Judah was exiled, 19 years later to the day, June 7th, 1967, Jerusalem is recaptured. God's timing is perfect in these things. They're back in the land, and now they're being given another set time frame in order to get to the point where they enter in the final seven years of tribulation. And at that point, they've got those seven years to call on Christ, and they will. The Bible is written. We know what's going to happen. It's very interesting, though, what's going on. But these people, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Anybody who's still under the law or trying to earn their deeds by the law in order to please God, they've rejected the only hope of being reconciled to God because the man who does these things will live by them and nobody can do them. And so they have condemned themselves. It is a self-condemning act. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Christ, that's all that matters is faith in Jesus. That is it. Yes. What doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what sin you commit. Murder, it doesn't. Murder is one of the Ten Commandments. If you break one of the Ten Commandments, the Bible says the whole, the whole law is broken. It doesn't matter what you do. As a matter of fact, James actually uses that. He says, uh, you, uh, you uh, don't commit adultery, but you do murder, right? He kind of makes it sound like adultery isn't as bad as murder or vice versa. Anyway, um, it, it doesn't matter. You break one commandment, the whole law is broken. It doesn't matter what you have done. It is under the blood if you have faith in Christ. He can cleanse you from any sin. And that's a real encouragement for people that realize the magnitude of the sin of abortion. Because I hate to tell people, but abortion is the murder of an unborn child. And once a person realizes that, they realize the offense that they have committed, they often will come and say, gee whiz, I really needed that atonement of Christ. I thought I wasn't so bad until I realized that I aborted my last 14 children. I mean, there's a lady I think she's in California where she's done that. She's like addicted to it. She she continuously gets pregnant so she can have abortion. She made the news a year or two ago, and I thought, how depraved our brain is that we would even think that. But anyway, it doesn't matter what the sin is. It can be forgiven. Um, well, there is the unpardonable sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. People really misinterpret that, and I've got that written down. If you want that, I can email to you. I'll send you the link to the sermon. But uh, uh, in essence, there are only two contexts to that. One of them cannot be applied to people today. The context is that the people of the law, meaning Israel, saw Jesus. They saw that he was the fulfillment of the very law that they were stewards of. And when they ascribed his works to the devil, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because they are the only people that had stewardship over the law. They should have known better, and so that is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's one context. The second context goes into the sense of being unrepentant in sin until the day you die, not giving your life to Christ, and that ends with the day that your last breath comes out and your heart stops and your brain doesn't work anymore. When you die, that isn't the unpardonable sin. You can no longer be forgiven. It is for man to uh, live, to uh, live once, and then the judgment. Once you die, your fate is sealed. Other than that, it doesn't matter what you have done in the stream of time. God can forgive you, okay? Anyway, that's just a real quick uh, snapshot of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, those two contexts. 
and one of them cannot be applied to people today. That has nothing to do with laughing at people. I'll tell you how serious people take this, these Pentecostals. I was at the church right down the road here, and uh, it, it, just a little diversion from Romans, but that's okay. I was at the church at um, uh, Temple Baptist Church, and there was a missionary there. And he came to talk to the church. You know, he was coming back from the mission field. And every time they come back, they have to raise money because somebody died or somebody stopped giving for whatever reason. And so he was there deputizing. And he said, um, when I was a boy, I went to a Pentecostal meeting. And there were people that were literally, they were outside the church rolling around in the grass, making funny noises. And he and his friend laughed at them. They said, <laughs> and the, one of the people got up and they said, you can never be saved because you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And this guy, the, for years after they joined the military, he was a drunk. He was, he was, he, he, it didn't matter. He says, I'm going to hell anyway, so I might as well, just, and he just, he, his whole life was completely ruined because some foolish idiot said something like that to him. And then somebody that he met in the military said to him, that's completely not true. And he gave him the simple gospel of Christ. And this guy was so overwhelmed, so broken, at the years that he had missed for Christ, that he became, he got out of the military and he became a missionary and he gave his whole life to the Lord because of that. And standing in that pulpit, he'd be in tears talking about the years that he wasted because of these foolish charismatics that said something so utterly ridiculous and so unbiblical. So you gotta be careful when you talk to people about theology because there are all kinds of people out there with all kinds of crazy ideas. And first you listen and then you go check for yourself. That's what you need to do. And it doesn't matter if it's me or if it's Les Feldick or anybody else that you seem to trust, you check what they say because everybody is prone to making mistakes. This Bible is without error. And if you find the answer there, that's where you'll be in the sweet spot. So I do my best to give you this. I will never intentionally give you bad information, but it's still best to check it out. All right. So with the coming of Christ, I've read this, but I'm going to read it again. He's the one who could fulfill the law and he did. After accomplishing this, he gave his life as a substitute for those who could never meet it. As Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 24, therefore, this is another reason for the giving of the law. I've given you one. The law was our tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay, I think the word in uh, Greek, I'm not remembering right now, I think it's pedagogue. Is that correct? Uh, I, I think that's right. What it is, it's a person that when you were in the society, at the time, you uh, the Greek society, you would have a parent, and he wouldn't have anything to do with this child until that child became a certain age. What they had is a person that would raise that child according to the customs of the land. And this person would teach them all of the things to do and what is right to do. And he'd take them by the hand, take them to school, and he'd say, now I want you to study. Your father is expecting you to be uh, a, a good student, etc., etc. And then eventually, when this person had gone through his schooling, this schoolmaster or this person would teach them how to live, then he would become an heir within the household, and only then, okay? And that is what the law was. It was a, a uh, schoolmaster or a tutor to lead us to Christ. And that's why, if you look at the Old Testament, people that understood that called, used the term uh, Bene Yisrael in Hebrew. Bene, Ben is son, okay? Yisrael is Israel. Okay, but in the Old Testament, they call them what? <laughs> Children of Israel. Whereas in the New Testament, they'll say the sons of Israel. If you see, it's a schoolmaster. Under the law, they were children. 
but when they come into the New Testament, now they're sons of God. So even the people that understand proper translation will say in the Old Testament, these are the children of Israel. They're under the schoolmaster, and then they graduate from the law. They come to Christ. They are now sons of God or sons of Israel through faith. Okay? Translations matter. Okay? And people will make mistakes. I understand that. And, and uh, they're fallible people within all translation committees. You're never going to have a perfect translation. But if you look for these key ideas, they can really help you in your theology because it's all making a picture of something else. Okay? Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. They're under the law. They, the only faith that they have is in the Day of Atonement, which is actually what brings them into right standing with the Lord. But in the New Testament, it is all, all done in Christ. He is our Day of Atonement. Okay, I had somebody um, post to me, and I'll say this just so that we, you can be in anticipation of this, because I get it all the time. People will say the... Um, first feasts of the Lord are fulfilled in Christ at his first coming. The fall feasts are fulfilled in Christ in his second coming. Okay, and I've said this in this class. I want to say it again, and I want you to remember that. That is completely wrong. That is a heresy because it means that Christ didn't fulfill the whole law. There were seven feasts of the Lord. He fulfilled all seven of them. Okay, I had somebody send me this recently. Well, I know that you believe that the fall feasts are fulfilled in Christ, but I want you to watch these three three-hour videos. One, I ain't going to watch three three-hour videos. I don't watch 10 minutes of TV a day normally. I'm not watching all these videos people send me. But I already know what they say. I've listened to them as I've driven. I've read all of the analysis. I know exactly what they're going to say. They're going to say that the Feast of Tabernacles points to Christ coming and tabernacling among us and blah, blah, blah. It is true. The Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated forever. Go to the last page of the Bible, and it says God is now tabernacling with men, Revelation 22, right? It is an eternal feast of the Lord, but it was just because we observe something does not mean that it's not fulfilled, and that's something we need to understand, all right? Is, do we observe Christ's birth once a year? Yes. Did Christ fulfill his birth? Yes. Obviously. So it is commemorative in nature, Okay, did Christ die on the cross? Okay, it's fulfilled, right? Do we celebrate that every single year? Did Christ come out of the grave? Yes. Do we celebrate that every year? Yes. It is done in Christ. It is commemorated forever. You see the difference? And people make these huge theological mistakes by saying, well, the fall feasts are fulfilled in Christ's second coming. They have nothing to do with Christ's second coming. The Feast of uh, uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, which is now Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, it's fulfilled. It is fulfilled already, okay? You, we're going to get to it. It won't be long, and we're going to be in Leviticus 23. But when we get to Leviticus 16, which I typed Leviticus uh, 13 last week and this week, and I probably got three more weeks of it because it's a really long chapter, and then we'll get into 14 and then 15. They'll go rather quickly. And then I'm going to do Leviticus 16. And when we get to that, if you say to me after I'm done with it, oh, that has yet to be fulfilled, I will not understand what planet you are from. It is so obvious. It is so obvious what is going on in Leviticus 16 that when you see it, you are going to be astonished. If you ever send me an email and say to me, or if you say, Charlie, but this guy says, I don't know what I'm going to tell you. Watch that sermon when we get there. Go back to the book. Go back to the book. You, you, and if, guess what? You got Rosh Hashanah, 
you've got Yom, uh, Yom Kippur, and then you've got um, uh, Sukkot, which is tabernacles. You got them in that order, right? Okay. Well, the first ones were fulfilled in order, right? So you would assume that if the middle one is fulfilled, then obviously the one before it was fulfilled, right? And then the one after it, no reason to think that that's not fulfilled. Why would one be left unfulfilled? And it was fulfilled. If you want to know Sukkot, right? Just read John 1.14. That's the answer to Sukkot right there. I mean, it'll take a whole sermon to give you all the details, but John 1, 14. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, wait a minute, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the The first half of that verse is the fulfillment of the feast of Sukkot. We be, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word right there, skenao. What does it mean? Literally, it means tabernacled. He put on a tent and he dwelt among us. It's the fulfillment of the feast of Sukkot, tents, okay? It's done. He is our tent. Now, everything after that is commemorative in nature, even through to Revelation chapter 22. It is something that is done. So please know that. I, I know that was a little bit of a diversion, but people need to get their doctrine right. If Christ did not fulfill every precept of the Old Testament law, then Christ did not fulfill the law, and the law is, Christ is not the end of the law for everyone who believes, and we're still under the law. You see, the, the, it's a heresy to say that the Old Testament law is not fulfilled in its entirety. It is. Everything that we do in Christ is commemorative in nature from this point on concerning the law, all of it, okay? Please remember that if you want to know about Leviticus 16 and the marvel of it, it's coming up soon. Watch those sermons. I got to tell you what, though. Wow. Childbirth one, Leviticus 12, the uh, animals that you're not supposed to eat, Leviticus 13, the first uh, little part of it. <laughs> Just amazing, the pictures of Jesus in there. Absolutely amazing. I've read those a million times. You know, until you study things, you just, you know. Just a mate, my hair standing up just thinking about it. You Leviticus wait till it's tough. It, what? Leviticus is tough. It is a tough book. And you, I'm going to tell you something that breaks my heart. Seeing as how you said that, this breaks my heart. We started out, and I've said this before, and every week it proves true. Started out with like, uh, I don't know, 800 people that watched the first sermon, and then 632, and then 430. And we're down to like 190 now. Every single week it's gone down and down because people. They don't want to know about types and pictures. If you don't know the book of Leviticus, you will never grasp the significance of the book of Hebrews. You will never. And it breaks my heart to think that people are so into it and that all this hype about rapture videos, 150, 200,000 watches on these videos that are so utterly stupid that I think, what are you thinking? Why would you watch that? And yet... People just keep watching when they watch them 10 times and they, they sink this stuff into their head. I will never understand it. Sensationalism, it sells well. I know it. But the meat is the book of Leviticus. I said that in the first sermon, and I stand by it to this day. It is the meat of the law. It's the middle of the law. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ for the people of the world. Every single word of it. it is, I, I, I am loving it. If we get down to seven people, and I'm not talking about the people online because they're not counted on the, the video views. I'm talking about the people that are in the church that watch streaming online seem to love it, okay? But it's the people that, oh, well, I'll, I'll, watch, I'll watch that one next week. I'll get to that in another week. And eventually it just gets whittled down and whittled down. If we get down to seven and we still have those seven, I will write them all a letter personally because I'm so <laughs> thankful they made it to the last. It, what a book Leviticus is. It, 
have those of you who watch them, are you enjoying them? Aren't they wonderful? It's to, oh, gosh sakes. Anyway, um, uh, okay, here we go. We'll go on. I had a lot of diversions today. And you know what I said? I hope I get my spunk back when the class starts and I got it back. I know I'm gonna I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna just be out of it. I just Burke came in and he woke me up. I was sleeping on the floor over here and no. I, I had drool running down my face and I said, "Oh, Burke, I wish you didn't come today." Oh gosh, I just oh miserable. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, it, the law is the end. It's our tutor to bring us Christ. The law was our tutor to grab us by the spiritual hand and walk us directly to the cross where the eternal fount of God's grace pours forth. It is the place where grace abounds in all of its fullness. Okay, life application. Uh, nothing changes. Those under the law rejected the premise that only faith could save them. And they looked to the law as a means to an end. In the church today are those with the same mentality. I will prevail by my deeds. That's 99% of the church today is I'm going to do something to please God. Neither satisfies because both are based on a faulty premise. We can't do anything to please God in and of ourselves. We can only look to him for the righteousness which comes by grace through faith. Put away your deeds of self and cling to the cross and all of its glory. It has always been about grace by uh, faith by, uh, through, by grace through faith. It always will be that way until the last person is saved and we go into the eternal realm. Now, it, it will always be that way. 521. <laughs> this is the last verse of the chapter. It is. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. Now, saying that before I read 521, we're going to get into baptism in um, chapter 6, probably verse 2 or 3. Where is it? Um Verse 3 and 4, he speaks of baptism. And then even in verse 5, when we get there, I'm going to do a diversion and I'm going to go through the baptism verses of the book of Acts. And I'm going to show you how the book of Acts is never to be taken in a prescriptive manner in that context. Okay, And if we get done with verse um, uh, 20, 21 today and then we get into 1 and 2 and we're done, we're just going to close early. Because I don't want to get into baptism, and then it's going to take us a whole class to get through that. So I just want you to know that in advance. It all depends on how quickly these next two verses go. But 521. <clears throat> the amazing words of chapter 5 conclude with this verse, which I'm going to read again, a little different. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. This chapter has been an astonishing array of theological truths centered on the work of Jesus Christ in his glory. The chapter finishes with the continuation of the thought seen in verse 20. So as sin reigned in death tells us that the consequences of Adam's sin are found uh, there, have found their throne in the death of humanity. Let me read that again. The consequences of Adam's sin found their throne in the death of humanity. Okay, when he sinned, death reigned over all of Adam's fallen kingdom, all of it. We were talking about being potentially in somebody, and then when you're born or when you're uh, conceived, you're actually in that person. Same thing with us being in our first father, Adam. Okay, when he sinned, death reigned over all, all of his kingdom. But even so, Paul says, even so, despite this being the truth, a truth which is undeniable, we know that. We don't need the Bible to see that. Everybody sins. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. 
you have to teach them to do right. They already know how to do wrong and it doesn't matter. You ask somebody, have you ever told a lie? And they say no. And I say, you know what? You don't need to lie to me about that. I, I mean, everybody has lied. Anybody that says they haven't is deluded or they, they just have a very short memory. What's that? Yeah, or they, yeah or they, well, that's what I tell them. I say, you know, you don't need to lie to me about that. And I, I put it back on them because they all know they have. But you may have a very, very short memory and that could be a problem too. But anyway, we know that it's true. It's something that we know is true. The even so, despite this being a truth which is undeniable, Paul will complete the contrast and show the glory of God's grace. <laughs> Excuse me. Every baby born has one guarantee in this new life. One guarantee. What is it? They're going to die. Every single child that is born to humanity has one guarantee, and that's it. You will die. There is no baby that is exempt from that, okay? And this death is a result of its spiritually dead state. If it was spiritually alive, it would not die, all right? And if all babies were going to heaven, then if you killed a baby, it would resurrect, right? Do you see the logic? If death is the uh, result of sin, and there's no sin in that baby, if it didn't have eternal sin, then it would automatically resurrect, but they don't. Dead babies stay in the grave, okay? They're waiting for their redeemer. They are waiting for their redeemer. That is the truth of the Bible. We can't get around that. If not, then that baby would just pop out of the grave and say, well, I died sinless, and so I'm gonna live the rest forever because I defeated death. It doesn't happen okay every baby has uh is that guarantee as a result as death is a result of its spiritually dead state it stays in the grave even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life when all seemed lost for the human race god revealed his promise a promise which came four thousand years after adam's fall in step jesus christ John tells us the marvel of what he personally witnessed when he said these words in John 1 verse 1 John verse is it John 1 John 1 1 16 and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace okay I thought that was 1 John it's not it's John 1 16 and his fullness meaning Christ we have all received and grace for grace the law was introduced to show us the utterly sinful nature of sin We've already seen that now. It's, we're getting to that. It's in uh, Romans 7, but we've already looked at it once. It's to show us the utterly sinful nature of sin. Transgression heaped upon transgression because of the giving of the law. But through this demonstration of our fallen nature came the superabundance of God's grace in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because of his work, grace reigns in righteousness, even unto eternal life. The kingdom of Christ is one of righteousness, and it is one of life. A complete contrast to Adam's kingdom of sin and death. Adam died. He is ruling over a kingdom of sin and of death. Christ rose from the grave sinless, and he is ruling over a kingdom of sinlessness and eternal life. Complete contrast. Just as the newborn baby has the guarantee of death, the born-again believer in Christ has the absolute guarantee of eternal life. Absolute guarantee. What a marvelous trade and what a glorious Savior. Life application. The Bible is God's word in a physical, tangible form, which has been given to us to search out his will and his intent for us. Pick it up and read it, okay? And be built up in your faith and in your security, a security which is found in Jesus Christ the Lord. Pick up the Bible, 
read the Bible. All right? Don't just come to Thursday night Bible study and think you've got all the theology you're ever going to get. You're not going to. You need to read it when you wake up in the morning. I first thing I do, well, actually, I take out a couple of the dogs because they need to go out. And then, you know, I, while they're out, I'm making coffee that's boiling. And then I pour that and I get to my desk and I'm, I open the Bible and I get in and I start reading the Bible first thing every day because it is the, what I want to illuminate my mind the first thing in the day. And the last thing I do before I go to bed, even if I'm dead tired, is I open up this book and I start reading it. I do pray after reading the Bible, but the last actual thing that I do before prayer is to read this book because I want it to be the last thing to solidify my mind, the thoughts of my mind throughout the night because I've had all kinds of garbage introduced into my mind throughout the day. And if I don't get this into it, that's what's going to be on my mind, right? Read your Bible. First thing, last thing, read it at lunch. Read it as you're driving your car. No, don't do that. Anyway, read your Bible. Yeah, listen to it. Plug it in and listen to it. Just have scripture because the more you have it, the more you will be. I have to tell you this. This is not bragging. This is just the way it is. If I didn't understand the rest of the Bible, if I didn't have a comprehension of what was going on in different words and concepts written by Paul or Peter or James or whatever in the New Testament, I would not have made any connection from Leviticus 12 or 13, the childbirth thing or the, the dietary laws. I would have nowhere to go. People that stick their nose into rapture and they read rapture and they read rapture books and they, they go to rapture prophecy conferences and all this kind of stuff and that's all they do, I feel so bad for them. They've got a teeny little portion of scripture, and that's all they know, and they cannot tie it in with the rest of the Bible. And they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or whatever they believe because that's what they were taught. And they've got it in their head, and they build all of their theology around a very small portion of the Bible. And I just use that as an example because I do a prophecy update. But there are people that get into one little discipline, sin. I know some churches that all they deal with is hell. Have you been in one of those churches? All they do is preach on hell. They, they talk about it through the whole sermon. I've been in sermons where that's all they talk about. If you don't do this, you're going to hell. And then they'll start talking about something else. And if you don't do that, you're... And it's, it's almost myopic about hell. I can't stand talking about hell. I know what the doctrine is. I know all about it, but I, I can't stand it. Because Christ is so much more glorious than talking about the consequences of rejecting Christ. Why, but why would they stay in a church like that? So some people, that's their thing. It's you've heard of hell, damnation of brimstone churches. They're out there. I've been in them, and yeah. it, it, I, I just I don't understand. But that's their thing. And like I say, some people that's all they want to do is talk about the rapture. It, that, that is such a small part of God's word. There are major disciplines. There are about ten or twelve major disciplines, and within those are dozens of minor disciplines, dozens, and they all have to be taken together in order to have a proper systematic theology of what's going on in the Bible. It all has to be united. All right. Um, okay, we'll go on. Uh, 6, verse 1. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is what I was talking about when we started today. I said Paul is going to ask some obvious, logical questions that people actually accused him of doing. Okay? And he's asking these questions rhetorically because they're obvious. He's like, Let me read it again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound. He's just talking about the superabundance of God's grace, the glory of what Christ has done for us, right? And it's all because we had a knowledge of sin. And when we sinned, grace abounded much more, right? So he says, well, if that's the case, if Christ 
is shown glorious and his grace is shown superlative because we sin, then shouldn't we sin? Because if we sin, then his mercy is even greater on us and his grace towards us is even more superlative. You see, it, it's a logical argument. It, it, it's a bad argument, but it's something that can come right in your mind and you can say, that makes sense. You know what? I shouldn't do this, but by doing it, Christ is going to be magnified in me because I'm a saved believer in Christ, right? He is going to be glorified. That is what Paul is asking now. Read it one more time. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay? We now enter into chapter 6, a chapter divided by two questions. Paul asks in order to set the tone for his explanations. Okay? Both questions are answered with certainly not. In other words, Paul is asking the most outlandish possible question in order to give the most logical refutation of the thought. He's standing as a debater in an argument and entering into the debate by giving a false premise and then arguing against it. And this is what real good debaters will do when they go into a debate and they're going to debate somebody else on an issue. They will introduce that person's issue before he gets a chance to and they will tear it apart. And so that person over here can no longer use that as a question. And now he's got to think of something else to do, which is not going to be the superlative thing that he thought he had. And debaters know how to do this, and they know what their enemy is going to be prone towards asking. And so they will preempt them. And that's what Paul is doing here. Okay? So the first question is, <laughs> excuse me, in Romans 6, verse 1. Based on his comments at the end of chapter 5, he asks, what shall we say then? This is Paul's how far can we go with God's grace? That's what he's saying. How far can we go with this? And then he floats the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The question is given in response to 520, which said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The thought is, okay, if grace abounds through the committing of sin, then can we continue to commit sin so that God's grace shines all the more brightly, right? That's the idea he's giving there. The answer should be obvious, and evaluating against it, uh, evaluating it against the perfectly holy standard which necessitated Jesus' cross in the first place makes the question all the more preposterous. One man's sin brought about judgment and condemnation to all of humanity. Were it not for Jesus, there would be no hope. If the cross was necessary to rectify this one act of Adam, that one act, then how could we presume to add to our guilt under a misguided notion? You see the logic there? It doesn't make any sense to do that. All the more so, how could we even consider this after we have been cleared of the guilt that we once bore? I bore this guilt in Adam, and now I'm saying maybe I can do more to make it look better for Christ. All right, it's a stupid argument, but this is the kind of thing that people do all the time. They and this is, I hate to tell you, this is how most of us will justify the sin that we commit in our life. We'll say, well, God won't mind, and he's already forgiven me anyway, and we go through all these mental things in our head. In one way or another, the questions that Paul asks here and elsewhere in the New Testament always reflect on something that he struggled with, he knows about, and therefore it also reflects us. We're all doing these things all the time when we try to justify our sin in some way, okay? So, despite the obviously outlandish nature of the question, Paul submits it because he knows the wickedness of the human heart, even of the soul saved from past sins. 
In our moments of weakness, we will go through steps in our mind to justify why the wrong thing we are doing is really okay. I hate to say it, but I do it myself, right? As much as I don't want to admit that, I go through these things and I say, well, you just try to think of why it's okay to do something you shouldn't do. I really needed to get home in time, and so I went 75 in the 30-mile-an-hour zone. I'm, I'm justifying, and that's not you know, the law of the Bible. That's just an example, right? The law says don't drive more than 30 miles an hour, but I need to do it. And so when the cop pulls me over, I say, but I really needed to get home. I'm trying to justify to him why what I did wrong was, and we do that with spiritual matters as well. That was just an example, but just so you see how it works, all right? In essence, we are attempting to excuse the sin that we wish to continue in. Paul knows this is the logical pattern of those weak in faith and weaker indeed. His argumentation will reflect this, okay? Life application, we got just enough time for one more verse, and then we're going to quit for the day. Uh, the Bible is as much an instruction manual as it is a love letter. God demonstrates and displays his love for us in its pages. And in the process, he instructs us in how to keep safe, healthy, honoring of him, and so on. The love directs the instruction. And so when you read a passage which seems confining or restrictive, don't forget to evaluate it from that perspective. The love is what directs the instruction. If he didn't love us, then he wouldn't care if we did this thing that was harmful to us, right? No, it's okay. Go ahead and, you know, drink yourself drunk every single night of your life. It's okay. It doesn't matter. He wants what's best for us. And so he loves us and he says, you know, don't be drunk, right? And all of these things that he says is for our health. It's for our benefit. It, mental health, you know, People that cheat think it's a good thing to do. It feels good, and I, I you know, I, I, I can cling to this person, and I can love them because I'm not getting it from my wife, but ultimately they will mentally suffer because of that, all right? And the Lord knows that. We will mentally suffer, and we're also trying to cover up our, our transgressions and our infidelities, and so we've got to be more careful, and it makes us neurotic, and it, it just affects every part of us when we commit a sin which God has told us not to do it. So he loves us enough to tell us not to do these things. Not to bind us and confine us because it's, you know, him being an ogre. It's to bind us and confine us because he loves us and wants to keep us from the results of our actions. And guess what? If you get caught, you're going to get shot, right? He doesn't want that either, okay? So this is, this is why he gave us these instructions, okay? <clears throat> Don't treat the, uh, the love directs the instruction, um, so when you read a passage which seems confining or restrictive, don't forget to evaluate it from that perspective. The restrictions are given because God loves you. Don't we treat the children we love in the same manner, right? You know that if they stick their hand on the stove, it, they're going to burn it. And so you say, don't do it. But I want to. It's nice and pretty orange, right? We know what the consequences are. He made us. He created us and he knows what is right for us. And that's why he's given us. But if you go out into the world today and you say that it says, don't be a homosexual, people will not even want to talk to you. They'll say that you're being insensitive and you're unloving and you're judgmental and you're hateful and all of the things they say, not realizing that that lifestyle causes more <coughs> mental problems and more suicides and more troubles within families and within society than they could ever imagine but it's restrictive and god is a mean god and i don't believe in him because i hate him and they just go on with these stupid arguments well if you hate him you have to believe in him you can't hate something you don't believe in they know he's there this is what the bible is showing us it's in us all right verse 6 2 and we're done by no means we died to sin how can we live in it any longer 
Okay. This verse is given in response to 6.1. What shall we say then, he asked? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is translated variously as, God forbid, by no means, of course not, may it never be, absolutely not, that's unthinkable, far be the thought, no indeed, let it not be, and so on. As you can see, it's a thought which translators revel in being unique about because of its superlative nature. The Greek term is me genoito, not or never may it come into being, all right? Paul's answer is one which completely disregards even the possibility of the thought of it being entertained. And why? His answer is clear and it's concise. How shall we, who died to sin, remember when Christ died, we died in Christ and so we died to sin. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? The soul saved by Christ has moved from the death of sin to death to sin. The Bible presents death in three specific contexts, all of which involve a separation. The first is spiritual death. This is what Adam and Eve experienced the moment that they disobeyed God. Spiritual death is a separation from the life which is found in God. There is no longer the eternal source of life available to that person. This has been transmitted from Adam to every human being in creation with the exception of Jesus who was born of God and a woman. He had no human father. He did not inherit that spiritual separation from his father. Every other person is already, all right? When people say, I'm gonna go get close to God and they're not in Christ, they ain't getting close to God. We are separated from him completely. The divide is absolute and we cannot bridge it. He's infinite, we're finite, we're going that way and we are in sin. He wants nothing to do with us. All right, the wrath of God remains on us because we are condemned already. Without Christ, that is the state of us. The second is a result of the first. It is spiritual death, or I'm sorry, physical death. Spiritual is what results in the physical death. <clears throat> Man is a soul-body unity. This is technically known as anthropological hylomorphism. It's a big word, okay? It's the duality of man. Anthropological means man, anthropos, okay? And then you have hylomorphism, the molding of two things or the melding of two things. So the, the doctrine of man melded together, soul-body unity. Physical death is a result of spiritual death, and it occurs when the soul departs. It's separated from the body. The Bible shows us that the soul without a body is what? The soul without a body is? No. Soul without a body, when you die, your it's soul dead. is? Well, I mean, that's It's what naked. Okay. Yeah. The soul without a body is naked. That's a 2 Corinthians 5, verse 3. The soul without a body, remember it says Abraham died and he was gathered to his fathers, implying that he's still a soul, right? Uh -huh. He's with his fathers. But 2 Corinthians 5, 3 says that the soul without a body is naked, all right? I, I want to be clothed and not naked, he says. In other words, the soul-body unity, all right? And therefore, this is an unnatural state. When you die, your physical body is dead. You know, people say, well, if you accept Jesus, you're going to live forever. Bad news for some people, you're going to live forever if you don't accept Jesus. It's just going to be in a different place, and it's going to be in a spiritually disconnected place from God. But your soul will go on and on and on. It's a place called, the in Greek, limnon tonpuras, the lake of fire, right? That's where the souls of people will go that have not accepted Christ. But you're going to live forever. 
you're just going to be spiritually dead and you're going to be a soul that just goes on and on in this miserable state. They'll have bodies there too. Well, I don't know. They, they will when they're thrown in, but I'm not sure how it works. And, you know, I, to, it, it, it's something that it, it, I really don't know. Yeah. I, it, you will have a body. You'll be resurrected to stand at the great white throne. What happens after that? I don't know. You know, you're cast into the lake of fire, and if, if there's a body, it's going to be a it's going to be a miserable existence. Crispy. You know, it is what a crispy body. A crispy body. Yeah, there you go. That that's what I'm trying to say. It's just it's hard to imagine what it's going to be like. But um, uh, okay, so we have the the body is naked, and therefore this is an unnatural state. The natural state of man is to be a soul body unity. But this doesn't necessarily mean man is complete. Because of spiritual death, a soul-body unity, which we all are, everybody on the planet is a soul-body unity, is in a state of fault, okay? This fault is corrected when one comes to Christ, all right? Everybody understand that? Everybody on this planet is a soul-body unity. They're alive, they have a physical body, it's united, but they're in a state of fault because they don't have the spiritual connect, spiritual connection which takes them back to God the Father. They're disconnected from it. Then the third state is explained by Paul, and it's noted in Romans 6, verse 2. It is death to sin. This is the separation of a person who has moved to Christ from the power of sin. They are born again to new life. The fault is removed, and the man has been regenerated to, co to his complete and originally intended state. Now, that doesn't mean our physical body. That means our connection to God, the spiritual reconnection. He is a soul-body unity with the surety of eternal life, both spiritual and physical. That's the third state that we can be in. This is the state which Paul argues for here. We have died to sin because this is so. How can we continue to live in it? Sin is something which is contrary to our very nature, and therefore it is something that we are to live without. See Paul's argument there? He's telling us we've died to sin. You're a soul-body unity, which means that you can sin, but you're also regenerated to God the Father. Why would you go back to something that you got out of in order to have something so much better? This is what he's explaining to us. A good comparison to consider would be taking a dead body and putting it on a ventilator, right? What is the point? It would serve absolutely no purpose at all. Likewise, being dead to sin has removed us from the very sin nature that we possessed. Therefore, to live in sin is contrary to the state that we are in now. That is what Paul is telling us in Romans 6 too. Everybody got that? I, yes. I had a teacher in Bible school who told me, like your example of the ventilator, he said it's like carrying a dead body around with you yeah, on your back. that's right. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because that dead body on your back is what? It's corrupting. Yeah. It's corrupting. And if it's in you, that corruption is united to your body, and you are bearing the stink of it. You're bearing all of the things that ooze out of it. Yeah. Everything in a dead body, which is corrupting. You're is, corrupting the vessel that's that right. God has made you. That's right. That's, that's a good example. God, God can't use a filthy vessel. It makes no sense. That's a very good example there. Okay, life application, and we are done. Christ died for us. When we receive him, we move from death to life. As this is spiritual renewal, then we should live out our new spiritual lives in a manner worthy of the change which has taken place. Let us move from sin to holiness, okay? 
Now, I know you've got something to say because you've been flipping pages for the past five minutes. It says where the worm dies not, so if we don't have a body, what's the worm feeding on? Well, absolutely, but, you know, what does that mean? Because it's the same thing okay, as... And he says destroy both soul and body in Matthew in hell. That's right. Destroy soul. Well, that's why I say, so if he destroys the body in hell, what is the state? Well, I, yeah. it, but it, if he destroys I understand soul, those verses. Yeah. I understand them. I know that. I, I. It's one of those things that... It, we went w through this with fire. The lake of fire implies yeah. light. But Jesus says it is what? Darkness. Outer darkness. Just because he says something, it's, he's describing something to us that we are not a part of right now. It's like when Paul says, I know a man in the uh, uh, went up to the third heaven and blah, blah, blah. And he describes all these things which are unexpressible, right? He's trying to tell us something that we cannot <laughs> grasp. There's something way beyond what we can we can comprehend and he says things that no man should utter or whatever I know I, I misused that but he is giving us words to describe something that are not fully describable and it's the same thing with hell with having a, a physical body because if you're destroying the soul in hell that means that the soul ends right well so it's in man, a state you know, said his tongue you know Right. I, I know that's Old Testament, but still. Well, no, no, no. It's an example. He's giving it, it an example. There, there is a state that that person is in. Now, he hasn't gone to the final judgment yet. He's not the great white throne. Mm -hmm. So that's not the lake of fire, but he is in torment waiting the final judgment. Yeah. So all of these things come into play. It's a giant study. And I have never seen two people completely agree on the doctrine of hell. I, it is not my thing. I don't dwell on it. I know the verses. I know what they say. And I know people that this is what hell's going to be like. And the next person will come along and say, but you missed this. And it just becomes this long convoluted it, because all of these verses say something that never, never meld completely There's together. Good news. Yes. We'll never know. We're not going to know. We ain't going there. Jesus has got us out of there. And that is the good news. That is absolutely right. We don't need to know. And what it's going to be like in heaven, we really don't know yet either. But it's but going to be will. pretty wonderful. And we will know. Absolutely right. So we're I going to. had a pastor that said <laughs> on the way to a meeting, he and this other guy was, was talking about the prodigal son. He took the position that he was lost going. And the other guy took that he was lost. And on the way back, they reversed positions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, These are hard <laughs> doctrines to look over. I'm telling you what. It really. And what is the prodigal son picture? Does that picture the Jews falling away and coming back to Christ? Or does it picture the Gentiles who were fallen and then came to Christ? Because it, it could go both ways. And maybe it's just a picture of all people that come to God the Father, you know, understanding that they were separated from him. I mean, in, you know, in one way or another, you could attribute it to both, but I've seen people argue on both of them, and they both make good arguments. So anyway, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to come together, and there are things that uh, uh, are, are difficult in the Bible, and that's undeniable, but the thing that is not difficult is that you have given Jesus. He is our grace. He is our source of life, and that if we have called on him, we are saved. We will not lose that salvation despite ourselves, and you have us firmly in your hands. And this, this is what is the most wonderful thing of all, because we're talking about things which affect us even to this day. All of us are in a state of growing in you, but we all fall back into old ways. There's no doubt about it. Help us not to do that. Help us to be strong in you and to, uh, to uh, be examples and lights to other people. And of course, Lord, once again, we pray for those who are sick, those who are uh, going through trials and troubles in their life, uh, whether they're, you know, of sickness or finances or whatever, we would lift them up right now. And we also pray for Ray and Jess as they get ready to go 
back to school for their final schooling before they go to Papua New Guinea. Unless you come first, Lord, and I'm sure they won't have any problem with that at all. But we'll put that in your capable hands and we'll leave it right there. And uh, we look forward to uh, wonderful things in the week ahead with you guiding us. We, we pray that that will be the case and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> all right, let me back this baby up here. We definitely feel like, you know, we're following the calling God has for us, but if he comes and spares us the, oh, I mean, the malaria. Won't the, that be wonderful? <laughs> All right, we love you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you later. <laughs> okay, got that and uh, put that there. Tom, this is for you. I want to give that to you before you fail. Are you feeling better? Yeah, I feel better. I've still got it. I'm still not on the Okay. Still <laughs> that's where I got it. And today I was it, yes. I was fine, and I have, today's been a tough day. So that's clean. Yeah, and it, it's, it's just a rag, but I did wash it. So anyway. That's really cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. I see. I, just, I know. I'd get out of the car on Saturday, and I'd be like, oh, I forgot to give it to Tom. So uh, uh, don't let me breathe on you. <laughs>